Uh, Good morning, one and all. Our scripture text for today is found in John chapter 10. And so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that portion of God's holy word, John chapter 10. And please follow along as I begin reading in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out. Of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe them, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You will notice in your, in your bulletin, in your, in your guide, that the, the title for uh, this sermon is, is pretty simple. The preservation, the preservation of the saints. Now that is what we're going to consider today based on these verses that we have, we have just read. But I think it's necessary before we get to the text and before we get to this, this great subject, the preservation of the saints, that I make three, three introductory remarks. And this might turn out to be more than an introduction, but we'll see how it goes. Arthur's laughing already. Three introductory remarks uh, before we get to the preservation of the saints. Uh, the first is this. Um, this is a tricky truth to explain. It's tricky to explain. Not because it is difficult in and of itself, not because it is necessarily complex, the preservation of the saints, but simply because this truth is interwoven with so many other truths. I like jigsaw puzzles. You take one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, you know you are but holding one 
piece in the puzzle, when all the pieces come together, the picture becomes clear. Well, when we speak of the preservation of the saints, we are but handling one piece in the puzzle. And to really grasp and to fully comprehend this truth, the preservation of the saints, we also need to grasp the sovereignty of God. We need to know something about the doctrine of perseverance. We need to know something about the doctrine of assurance. We need to understand the nature of saving faith, the nature of grace. We must also grasp what the Bible says about the danger of presumption and the danger of apostasy. Unless you want to be here until 4 o'clock Thursday afternoon, we can't do all that today. All we're going to handle is this one simple truth, this one simple piece. But I say all that by way of introduction just so that you know that I know that as we, as we bask in the radiance of this truth as it is declared here in this portion of God's Word, it will raise questions. Uh, it will raise one or two or three problems. I know that. I'm aware of them. Time doesn't permit us to deal with all of them, but I assure you, and here is the wonder of systematic Bible exposition, we will get to each one of those other pieces in the puzzle as we continue on and plod along through John's Gospel because John touches on each one sooner or later. So the rest of the pieces are coming and all the questions will be answered. Maybe this year, it might be next year, the Lord knows. But what we're about today is very simple. We're very focused. One target in view, the preservation of the saints. Second introductory remark I need to make is this. Uh, This truth, the preservation of the saints, is easy to abuse. We need to be conscious of that. Very easy to abuse. A friend of mine, Scott, years ago, shared with me his frustration with his brother. Why? Well, his brother had professed faith in Christ as a teenager at at a youth camp. Soon after, he became involved in drugs. Soon after that, he became involved in crime, ended up in prison. And so my friend Scott had gone to visit his, his brother, and he had gone heavy, heavy laden, uh, concerned about his brother's, uh, the state of his brother's soul. And so he went to him, he confronted him with his sin because there had been no remorse, there had been no regret, and there most certainly had been no repentance in his life. And so he went with him, he confronted him with his sin, and he pleaded with him as he explained and preached the gospel to him in the prison. His brother, brother cut him off in mid-sentence. Oh, come on, what, what are you talking about? You were there. You saw me go forward at the campfire. I believe all that. I am in the palm of God's hand. Friends, that is a misunderstanding, a misrepresentation, a misinterpretation, and a misapplication of this text. I want to be very clear here, very clear. If I stand before you and profess to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, Yet I am living in sin. I am habitually practicing sin. I am walking in sin. Mark my words and be very careful here. Yes, I may be in the palm of God's hand. I might very well be. Here's the thing. I have no reason to assume I am. 
No reason to assume, no reason to presume that I am in the palm of God's hand. What I need is to read 1 John and find out what a Christian looks like. Find out what a real believer, a true believer is all about. And so I say that not to scandalize you. I say that not to upset you. But I do say that to set things in order and to make sure we are very lucid in our thinking, especially when it comes to this truth, the preservation of the saints, and that we dare not misinterpret it, misapply it, and therefore end up abusing it. Because it is easily abused. Evangelicalism today, and I firmly believe it, you may disagree with me, that's fine. Evangelicalism today is awash with people who want to go to heaven and yet still live however they please here on earth. And they abuse this doctrine to justify it. We need to be so careful, very careful. The third introductory remark I want to make is this. This truth, the preservation of the saints, is simply, quite simply, extraordinary to behold. Why do I say that? I say that because as, in the, as is the case with all of God's truth, this particular truth is linked to God's glory, his glory. Salvation is not our work. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. The Father, as, as we sang but moments ago, the Father loved us before the foundation of the world. The Son redeemed us by laying down his life for the sheep. For his people, the Spirit of God caused us to be born again and has sealed us until the coming day of redemption. Salvation, I'll say it again, from start to finish, from beginning to end, is a work of God. And it is a work that God performs. It is a work that God effects for one reason, one reason alone, his own glory. And therefore, the salvation of his people is eternally linked to his glory. If one of his people is lost, God's glory is compromised. You understand that? I'll take it a step further. I will echo the words of Martin Luther, who who declared from his pulpit centuries ago, if we perish, brothers and sisters, if we perish... Christ perishes with us. Think about that. If we perish, Christ perishes with us. You see, the union between Christ and his people, his sheep, his bride, is such that it is inseparable. It is indissoluble. It is, it is an eternal union in the sight of God, guaranteeing our salvation, thereby guaranteeing the glory of God. And that is an extraordinary truth to behold. And so those three introductory remarks out of the way. We turn to the text. John chapter 10. Let me begin by giving you a brief outline of this portion that we have read. You will remember that this chapter consists of two discourses. The first found in verse 1 going all the way through to verse 18. There is a response in verses 19 through 21. The second discourse, we have just read it beginning in verse 22, going more or less through to the end of the chapter. On your clipboards, 
or in your bulletin, whatever you have before you, I've given you a very simple five-point outline of these verses there. Let me just review that for you quickly before we get to the verses we want to zero in on this morning. First of all, in this text, we see what? We see that there is a context, verses 22 and 23. John tells us that what is about to take place happens when, during the Feast of Dedication, wintertime. What is the Feast of Dedication? Second century B.C., Israel, loosely defined, was under the control of the Syrians. And at that time, there was a king of Assyria, Antiochus Epiphanes, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, something like that, he decided to desecrate the temple. And so he constructed an idol, a pagan idol, set this idol over the altar of the Lord, and for several years defiled, desecrated the temple of God. It led to a revolt known as the Maccabean Revolt. And eventually the Maccabees were victorious. In 164, the Syrians were pushed out of Jerusalem, and the temple was re-consecrated to God, re dedicated to God. And in memory, in commemoration of that event, the Jews began to celebrate annually in December the Feast of Dedication, known today obviously as Hanukkah. That is the Jewish festival that points back to this historical event. So that's the context. It's wintertime. The first thing we come to now in verse 24 is we come to a claim. Christ makes a claim, really beginning in verse 24, all the way through to verse 30. The Jews approach him. This is building on his first discourse earlier in the chapter. And they're still hounding him. They're still after him, given the claims that he is making concerning his deity. And so they ask him there in the middle of verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That is bewildering. You know that, I know it, given what Christ has said and done already in their presence. And so he responds, as we might expect in verse 25, I told you. For starters, look at all of my I am statements. He has made repeated repeated uh, uh, declarations concerning his identity, concerning his deity, that he is indeed the Son of God. I told you. And not only have I told you, but I have performed works, the works that I do in my Father's name, bear witness about me. So you ask me to tell you plainly who I am. I've already told you who I am. I have said it umpteen times. And not only have I made it clear verbally, but I have furnished ample proof in support of my claim. And so what's the problem? Why is it you don't believe me? Look at verse 26. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. And so we are not sheep. We are not sheep because we believe. We believe because we are sheep. They are not sheep. They are not of his flock. And therefore they refuse to believe. And then the Lord Jesus uses that. And he launches into a wonderful description of the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. What's more, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And this leads to his declaration, I and the Father are one. That's his first claim. And then there's a response, verse 31, their first response. The Jews picked up stones again to stone at him. No surprise there. The Lord Jesus continues on. He responds in kind. And with a second claim, Jesus answered them, verse 32, I have shown you many good works. You think of all of his miracles. From the Father, that's where these miracles, these signs, these wonders have come from. For which of them are you going to stone me? What is it that I have done that has got you so upset? I perform these these glorious miracles and signs in your presence. What's the problem? For which one are you going to stone me? Verse 33, they answer him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you. Here's why, for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then what appears to be a rather convoluted response, it isn't really, beginning in verse 34, the Lord Jesus appeals to Psalm 82, I think it is. Psalm 82, verse 5 or 6, where it is written, what? I said, you are God. That's a quote from the 82nd Psalm. Well, we need to go back to the 82nd Psalm and understand what's happening there. What's going on? Well, in the context of that Psalm, God refers to the judges of Israel as gods. The civil magistrates in Israel as gods, small g. Why? Because as judges, as magistrates, they occupy a position of authority within the nation. And occupying that position of authority, they reflect God's authority. They represent God on earth and they are responsible for upholding God's law among men. The problem is that those judges within the nation of Israel were corrupt judges, sinful, evil judges. But even in their corrupt and sinful state, God still refers to them as God's. Well, Christ's point is this. Well, hey, if God, back in the law, back in the scripture, Psalm 82, referred to your forefathers, those corrupt judges, as gods, and you have no problem with that, then why do you stumble? Why do you find it so difficult to comprehend? Why do you find it so unpalatable to accept that God would refer to the one whom he himself has sent? the one whom he himself has consecrated, the one who performs signs confirming who he is as the Son of God. Why why, why is that such a problem for you? Why so difficult to accept? Especially given the fact that the Father has clearly sent me. Especially given the fact that the Father has clearly consecrated me, set me apart for my mission. Especially given the fact that the Father has given me these wonderful signs to perform in your midst that indeed confirm I am who I claim to be. And so this leads him to make that second claim. Right there at the end of verse 38. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. How do they respond? Verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. Now, I know that the most important verses in all likelihood in this text are indeed 
the verse where the Lord Jesus says, I and the Father are one, verse 30. And as we just read, where the Lord Jesus says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There we have two wonderful claims, wonderful declarations concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are, I'll repeat it, in all likelihood, the most important verses, statements in this chapter. We're not going to look at them today. We're going to keep them till next Lord's Day. And focus in on those two statements and and consider together what they reveal concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. Our business today is the preservation of the saints. And in particular, as you undoubtedly noticed, what Christ declares beginning in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. How can I be so certain that God will keep me to the end? How can I be so certain that I am eternally secure? How can I be so absolutely confident that nothing can separate me from God? That nothing can snatch me from God's hand? That nothing can rip me, tear me from God's grip? How can I be so confident, 100% confident, and stand here before you this morning and declare with absolute certainty that I will persevere to the end? One reason and one reason alone. It is because God will preserve me to the end. There are three great truths concerning the preservation of the saints. God's work of preservation in our lives in those two verses. And I want us to focus on these this morning. The first is this. My salvation, the reason I am so certain, so confident when it comes to My salvation is this. It is founded upon God's righteousness. I'll repeat that. It is founded upon God's righteousness. Look at what Christ says at the start of verse 28. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. My acceptance, that implies the following, my acceptance with God isn't based on what I have done. My acceptance with God is based upon what Christ has done. I give them eternal life. What guarantees my salvation is nothing in me. Nothing particularly meritorious about me. It isn't that I have procured or paid or earned or merited in any fashion God's favor, salvation. It is entirely based, entirely grounded, entirely constructed upon what the Lord Jesus Christ himself has done. What this is known as, simply put, is the doctrine of justification. Justification. My salvation is founded upon God's righteousness. Martin Luther wrote, This justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. As Calvin put it, This truth, justification, 
is the hinge upon which everything turns. Dr. Packer refers to justification as that mythological figure, Atlas. Do you remember Atlas from Greek mythology? He was condemned to uphold the world upon his shoulders. If Atlas were to stumble, if Atlas were to falter, if Atlas were to shrug, the world would come tumbling, crashing down. So too, if the doctrine of justification is lost, if the doctrine of justification is compromised, Christianity falls. And I'm convinced in part that as we look out at Christendom today, we find an empty shell. And by and large, the reason we find an empty shell is because this precious truth, this glorious truth, is lacking the doctrine of justification. When we think of justification and what Scripture says about the gospel as it is grounded on God's righteousness... We have to keep in mind, and you've heard me say it before, I'll repeat it now, we have to keep in mind that word imputation. I may not be able to spell that, but I better be able to understand it. Because justification rests firmly upon this term, imputation. And there are in Scripture three imputations. Firstly, Scripture makes it clear that Adam's sin has been imputed to me. Adam's sin has been reckoned to me. Paul declares it in Romans 5. One trespass, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And so because of Adam's sin, and because Adam sinned as our federal head, his singular sin is imputed, reckoned to all humanity. Shows us the gravity of sin, doesn't it? I'll move slowly here and cautiously, but, but, but we, do need to, we do need to reckon with, 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 the, with the gravity of sin and the gravity of, of Adam's sin and understand, understand this, that if, if no other sin had ever been committed other than Adam's sin, all mankind is damned. Do, do you understand that? Do we grasp that? We did not have to commit any more sins after Adam's sin. His one trespass, his one sin led to condemnation for all men. God has imputed Adam's sin to everyone. And heaped on that, we have that sinful nature, do we not, that we have inherited from Adam whereby we no longer think like we should or feel like we should. And heaped on that, we do have all those sins that we commit in word and in deed and in thought. But there, see, there is a what second imputation in Scripture. And Scripture speaks of the imputation of our sin to Christ. So then when the Lord Jesus Christ dies on the cross... He becomes sin for me. God takes my sin and He reckons my sin, not just original sin, Adam's sin, but all of the sins I have ever committed. And He reckons and He imputes that sin to the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross where the Lord Jesus becomes the sin bearer and is judged, punished by God. And now you see there is a third imputation in Scripture, isn't there? 
whereby God takes the righteousness of Christ and now he imputes it to me. You see, Adam's sin imputed to me. My sin imputed to Christ. And Christ's righteousness now imputed to me. Whereby when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I am made one with him, God reckons Christ's righteousness to be mine. And I become the righteousness of God in Christ. It led John Bunyan to write, you've just finished your study of Pilgrim's Progress today. Don't stop there when it comes to reading John Bunyan. Pick up Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners or Holy War or Mr. Badman or, or something written by Bunyan and learn from him. And it was in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, that Bunyan wrote one day, As I was walking in the field with some dashes on my conscience, fearing that all was not right with my soul, suddenly this sentence fell upon me. Your righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. Wherever I am, Or whatever I am doing, God cannot say of me, he lacks righteousness. Because my righteousness stands before him. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday. And today and forever. Friend, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I am not asking you if he fills a little perceived hole you think you have in the bottom of your heart. I am not asking if he is some sort of spiritual counselor or guru to you. I am not asking if he is some sort of self-help recipe for you that helps you get through the difficult times in life. No, I am asking, is he the savior of your soul? Is he your righteousness? Do you perceive your sinfulness before a holy God? And do you perceive that God calls you to repentance and faith in Christ? And for us to look away from ourselves and to take hold of Christ, believing that my sin has been imputed to him in full at Calvary's cross and he has borne it away. And that his righteousness has been imputed to me in full whereby I stand before God justified in his sight. My salvation is founded upon God's righteousness. The second reason why I'm convinced I will make it to the end is as follows. My salvation is rooted in God's love. Turn again to verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice the next phrase as we enter into verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me. The Father has given a bride to his Son. The Son has become a man for his bride. The Son has laid down his life for his bride. The Son cherishes his bride. The Son lavishes that same love 
that the Father lavishes upon him, upon his bride. And therein lies my hope. My salvation is rooted in God's love for me. That is why Paul prays so earnestly in Ephesians chapter 3 that we might know, that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Surpasses knowledge in its expression. It led Christ to the cross. Greater love has no man than this that someone lays down his life for his friend. It surpasses knowledge in its cause. It flows from the Father's love for His Son. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It surpasses knowledge in its extent. Covers all my sins, Paul declares. God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It surpasses knowledge in its fruit. It contains every conceivable blessing and then some. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. It surpasses knowledge in its degree. It is fixed upon his people. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And it surpasses knowledge in its strength cannot be touched by anything within the created realm. Who, asks Paul, shall separate us from the love of Christ? My salvation is rooted, firmly rooted, in God's love for me. We don't understand that, brothers and sisters. We do not understand that as we should without being guilty of oversimplifying, I think there are probably three reasons why that's true. Three reasons why we don't appreciate and bask in God's love as we ought. I think the first is probably this. We we are so confused when it comes to distinguishing between God's common love for His creatures and God's special love for His children. Pick on Logan just because he caught my eye and he's sitting there. It's okay, Logan, don't squirm. But I can stand here before you this morning and tell you I love Logan. I do. There's lots of things I would do for Logan. Enjoy interacting with him. I love children. Love the children here at Grace Community Church. Everyone would agree with that and probably feels the same. Here's the thing. I love Laura, my daughter. The question How does my love for Laura, no offense, Logan, your your dad would say exactly the same thing if it were reversed. How does my love for Laura compare to my love for Logan? You cannot compare the two. Do we grasp that in Scripture, friends? The difference between God's common love for His creatures. He loves all mankind. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And His special love For his children. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. We do not bask in that as we ought. The second reason we're a little muddied in our thinking when it comes to God's love for us is as follows. We fail to distinguish between our love and God's love. 
This is a real problem because so much of our love, be offended if you like, but so much of our love is nothing more than sappy sentimentality, right? If truth be known, we fall in and out of love. We fall in and out of love and change love like we change the oil in our cars. And our love is so contingent upon what we get out of other people, how they look to us, what they do for us, whether or not they push all our buttons. And our love is up and down. There are ebbs and flows constantly changing, isn't it? Depending on other people and what they're doing and how we're feeling at a particular moment. Well, if we think God loves like that, oh, we're going to live in in a constant state of uncertainty, aren't we? But you see, God's love is not like that. God doesn't fall in love. And nor does God ever fall out of love. He loves his own from before the foundation of the world, irregardless of anything in them, because he loves them in his Son. That brings me to the third reason, closely related, why I think we struggle with appreciating God's love. It's as follows, our own sin and unworthiness. We feel it. We feel the depths of our depravity. We feel the guilt of our sin. We feel the frustration of of sin that we thought we had vanquished and had risen its ugly head again. We deal with sins past, sins present, and sins we think might come down the pike in the future. And because of our unworthiness, and because we are spotted from head to foot, we ask ourselves, how could God ever love us? Me. And we fail to understand something, haven't we? That God's love for me is not caused by anything in me. God's love for me is that love that He has set upon me in His Son. You remember the story of Mephibosheth? Spell that one Mephibosheth. David wanted to know if anyone still remained from the house of Saul. Mephibosheth, grandson, wasn't he? A cripple. Unknown to David. Someone that he probably should have put to death because he had a right to claim the throne, I suppose, politically speaking. And yet David lavished such blessing upon Mephibosheth. Why? Because Mephibosheth was such a wonderful man? Because Mephibosheth was particularly attractive or useful? Because David got a warm, fuzzy feeling whenever Mephibosheth was around? No, what does David tell us? It was because of his love for Jonathan that he showed and lavished such kindness on Mephibosheth. It's the same with you and me, brothers and sisters. You see, that is a love that can't change. Because it is the Father's eternal love for the Son. And that is the love that has been poured out on us. And that is a love that knows no ebbs or flows or ups and downs. And does not change according to temperament or personality or how our day is going or what people are doing for me or not doing for me. It does not change. Nothing can touch it. It is unalterable, untouchable, unchanging and unwavering. Do you understand that? Understand it. That our salvation is rooted, firmly rooted in God's love. And that's why Paul prays. 
that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The third reason why I'm confident I'll make it to the end, my salvation is guarded by God's power. Start at verse 28. I give them eternal life. It's a gift. They will never perish. No one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, expression of love. Now the Lord Jesus utters a wonderful truth concerning his Father is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Does the field of wheat have any chance against the tornado? I haven't been here long enough in Texas, but I'm guessing it doesn't. Does the field of wheat have any chance against the tornado? No. Does the bed of flowers have any chance against the deep frost? No. Does the stack of kindling have any chance against the flame? No, you see, there is inevitability with each of those scenarios. Why? Because one is no match for the other. So too when it comes to our salvation. Our salvation rests on an almighty, all-powerful God. And that's why Paul can declare in Romans 8, if God is for us, somebody tell me, somebody please explain, who can be Against us. Now some poor soul whispers to himself, herself, well, Satan. Satan's pretty powerful. Sadly, we, we, we live in a day and age in which we have a rather somewhat dualistic view of the universe, don't we? I don't know if it stems back to Star Wars, good force, bad force, or what it is, but it does us no good. This dualistic idea of the universe, you know, forces of evil over here with Satan at the head and Forces of good over here with God at the head. And they are fight, they're, they're fighting, they're, they're caught eternally in some sort of cosmic duel and control for the cosmos and for the universe. Nothing can be further from the truth. Four things we need to keep in mind when it comes to Satan, brothers and sisters. The first is this. Satan is powerful. Don't misunderstand me. He is. He is powerful. But the second thing we must grasp and constantly remind ourselves of is this. Satan's power is a derived power. In other words, somebody gave it to him. He's not inherently powerful. He does not have his power in and of himself. But it was a power that was bestowed upon him by God when he created him in the beginning. And closely related to that, the third truth concerning Satan is this. His power is not only a derived power, it is a limited power. He cannot do what he will. He only does what God wills. He only does what God willingly permits him to do. He is not free to challenge God whenever he pleases. He is not free to overrun and undermine and destroy the works of God whenever he sees fit. No, he is free to powerfully act whenever the one who gave him that power willingly permits him to use it. Fourth thing we need to keep in mind when it comes to Satan is this. His power is actually a ministerial power. As the old Puritan William Grinnell wrote, it is appointed by God. It is appointed by God for the service and for the benefit of the saints. 
If God is for us, who is against us? My salvation is guarded by God's power. With that in mind, Luther wrote, If God be for us, if God be for us, who is the judge of all, and whose omnipotence calls into being all things, no one can be against us, since everything that he has created must be subject to the Creator. Did you get those three this morning? My salvation is founded upon God's righteousness. My salvation is rooted in God's love. And my salvation is guarded by God's power, the preservation of the saints. Chris taught us a new hymn this morning, new to some of us here, historically certainly not new. But let me conclude by reading those words again for as they are precious and they summarize and tie together well in a splendid fashion what we have meditated upon this morning. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing. Nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now, not all things below nor above, can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. My name from the palms of his hands eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. I love this next line. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven.